0: Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 176 A Quest. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Also, Knit Circus. Knit Circus, the online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can visit Knit Circus at www.knitcircus.com. And I believe shortly after this episode goes live, the fall issue will come out which of course makes me ever so jealous because that means that some of you are going to start getting cool weather in a month and not so much us. But that's okay because we're getting rain. Rain is lovely. And I had a lovely time in Chicago. have a little bit to tell you about that. And <clears throat> my sister-in-law said, oh, it's been beautiful here. Bring your bathing suit. It's great. And I started checking online and it said it was going to be thunderstorms the whole weekend. So I didn't bring my bathing suit, which is actually fine. But uh, I arrived and brought with me really hot, really sunny, and of course, really humid weather. And uh, my sister and brother-in-law were very tolerant of my fear of mosquitoes. So we ate inside instead of out in the air, out in the nature. And uh, and oh gosh, I just had a lovely time. It's like, Um, you know when you meet someone and usually it's like, now that we're getting older, it's like a friend of a friend and you're like, oh my gosh, I have been looking for you all my life. You are a perfect friend. You know, you're someone who's just an easy fit, a perfect fit. And one would like to have one's relatives be that kind of person, but one is not always able to count on that. And I would just like to put it out there that I have the best sister-in-law in the world. There, out there, said it, done. She's amazing. And if I can tempt her, I will have her send, uh, send me a photograph of the wedding quilt that she made for her husband as a wedding gift, which is stupendous. And then we're going to a wedding this, uh, let's see, in two weeks. And for that wedding, she has also made a wedding quilt for a member of our family and if it if it is possible to surpass perfection she did and it just makes me feel so very very small (laughs) in the quilting world and you know the nice thing though was being able to spend kind of sustained time with someone who is a quilter and you know how with knitters and especially you who have been listening to me for a while you know that a lot of times your, uh, your frame of reference or the, mm, the shorthand that you use winds up being crafting shorthand. So, you know, when you start talking about math, eventually with a knitter, I'll be like, okay, well, remember when you need to decrease, what you need to think of is, you know, it's stuff like that. Well, living with a quilter is very similar that her shorthand is quilting. And as a consequence, Uh, in in kind of a very natural, organic way, I picked up some really important factoids about quilting, like don't use steam on your quilt, Heather, which, you know, that crazy quilt that I've been working on? Not the one that I gave my friend uh, four years ago back in the early episodes. Now, this is a crazy quilt I've been working on since then. It's, a lot of it is, um, uh, Ties. My husband's old ties. Like there's a Snoopy Starry Night. So it's like the Van Gogh background, Van Gogh background, and then Snoopy in front. These were goofy ties that my husband had when he was in the theater world instead of the business world. And so um, he was going to throw them all out, and I had to rescue them. So I was making this little kind of lapghan, or maybe something to throw across the foot of the bed. We've been working on it for four years now, but my sons and I, we are making progress. It will be done but now I'm realizing why some of it got kind of distorted. It's because we were ironing with steam. Um, So little things like that, that I learned. It was also nice because I was able to kind of put um, quilting time commitment into perspective. And um, quilting is not something I'm going to be able to take up anytime soon. For one thing, I'm, I'm still launching all aspects of the business, which is going along swimmingly. And in fact, there are now live links from the craftlet.com show notes to the tutorial site, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit site, um, where I'm adding information to Madame Defarge every couple of days as people are getting me bios and things like that. And of course, along with part of this media empire, is the opportunity for you to perhaps even include your own pattern in the What Would Madame Defarge Knits book. There's information for you on craftlit.com under pattern, is it pattern submissions or pattern guidelines? It's something like that. It's one of the links across the top of the page. And um, please feel free to send us, your patronage, and uh and we will we will choose and it doesn't you know it may not even be just one person who wins inclusion it may be more than one person so um you know it's it's totally what's going to fit with the uh the larger picture of the book and of course we want to put the best patterns in there for you in a couple of weeks the next sneak peek pattern will be available peaks filled (laughs) p-e-e-k a number of you noticed that I was a wee bit tired when I was uploading all, uh, oh, let's see, there were 16 pages that I tried to put live all at once. And I spelled P-E-A-K, which is a different kind of sneak peek. (laughs) Imagine the Himalayas sneaking into your backyard. That's a sneak peek, not the one I meant. So uh, those have all been corrected, I think. I think I got them all. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, so all sorts of, of good informational things are out there on the show notes. And a lot of you have started putting, instead of emailing me directly, you're putting things into the comments. And I really appreciate that for two reasons. One, people are not listening to the podcast in real time necessarily. We have a lot of people who are coming up from the back um, all the time. I'm always getting email from people who are in Pride and Prejudice or Turn of the Screw or Tale of Two Cities or Little Women, you know, a year, two, three behind real time. And those people are still going to the show notes. So even, even if you leave a comment now, it is very possible that no one else is going to respond to your comment for another year. And then all of a sudden out into the blue, you'll get an email reply saying, hey, somebody commented on your comment. Um, The other thing is on the show notes if you go to a show notes page like you click on episode 176 a quest and you get just the 176 dedicated page you will see in the sidebar a little you know sidebar widget doohickey that says these are the most recent comments and if you look you will notice that they are not all from current episodes a lot of the comments are going into older things which is a long way of saying, if you have something to add to the conversation about the book, please post it in the show notes. Initially, it was much easier for you to email me and then I'd read stuff on the air and everybody would go, oh, but now that we're out of sync, uh, we've got a lot of listeners and and a lot of them are not in sync because a lot have joined in just the last, geez, I don't know, nine months. I'm not entirely sure what happened, but we've had a couple of major spikes in listenership and this is what happens. So... Uh, not only think, you know, not only to put uh, comments into the comment notes, but also corrections, like my whole um, miserable debacle with, um, with vellum and palimpsests and how they're made and, and uh, the quality of parchment paper in reality. So, you know, all this stuff is really important information, I think. And, uh, and I hope you know by now that correcting me is not something I abhor. I actually prefer it. I'd rather the real information get out there. Plus, you know, it's horrible if you're sitting at home and somebody says something that you know is absolutely factually off. It's horrible to sit there and just stew about it. You know, put it on the comments, share it with the world. Heck, I, there, there is only so much I can know, as it were. And it's a lot. <laughs> But it's not everything. No, I, I, rely, I rely on the po- kindness of strangers and the listeners of Craft Lit. You guys are wonderful. And you are really interesting people. Just need to give you a little pat on the back there. Um, Fight Club. I have my list. Fight Club, it's gone viral. I'm sure everybody's seen it. But just in case you are not part of the Twitter sphere and have not uh, seen this go across either your Facebook page or, or heard about it from a friend, there is an awesome little, what, two minute, two and a half minute uh, video about what would have happened if Fight Club, the, you know, the Brad Pitt Ed Norton movie, um, had been happening in Jane Austen's circle back then. And it's, it is not perfect, but it is really good. It's just a lot of fun to watch. And, and it'll just send you into get hysterical giggles, and that'll be fun. So, you know, I'll, if you're having one of those days, I recommend watching the Fight Club link. I will embed that video into our show notes. But um, for the iPhone users, I'm going to try and embed the video into the iPhone app this will be the first time I've done this if it works you'll know and if it doesn't you won't so there it is uh I learned a new crafty thing I did not learn this from my sister-in-law but I did I was inspired by something that she was telling me about with quilting and when I was at a, uh, our fabulous used bookstore Bookman's which when you come to Tucson, you really must go to one of their three locations. You will not believe it is a used bookstore. Um, they, had, they have magazines. Now, for a long time, their crafting knitting magazines were really kind of lacking. But I walked into the store and there were five, five, five older issues of spinoff, like the kind people buy and sell on eBay. And there were three relatively recent issues of cloth, paper, scissors for $2 a piece, which especially after you have trade-in money, you know, it's like fake money. You take stuff, they take it, they give you X number of dollars in cash or more in trade. Well, we always take the trade. So I got a bunch of free crafting stuff and somebody mentioned in one of their letters to the editor or their comments or here, let me share my new spiffy technique with you. Part of the the magazine someone said something about transferring images to polymer clay. And there was an example, lovely little example in the magazine of someone who took um, kind of a a shadow boxy frame and uh, arranged various tiles in there in kind of, not a mosaic specifically, because they were all rectangular tiles or, or square tiles, but fit them in like those little slidey puzzles that we used to have you know that were nine by nine but one of the squares was missing so you could slide the squares around it was kind of the precursor to the rubik's cube that's what this looked like um and and some of the tiles were clearly little crafty things some of them were um they they looked like polymer clay that she had stamped uh three-dimensional artsy kinds of bits into and then kind of painted over and made it all pretty and then the centerpiece was a four by six white tile that had one of her watercolor paintings on it yes that's what I said so here's the deal it's really very easy Um, you need to have an actual tile one that is bakeable uh, because you are going to put the polymer clay on that and bake it and then you're going to take a laser Uh, color laser or black and white laser copy or a photocopy from a photocopy machine not from an inkjet printer this won't work with inkjet stuff you take your image you cut it out it doesn't have to be trimmed nicely because you can always trim the polymer clay once the transfer is done you take a, a, a a bone folding knife or or something some people use credit cards. some people use their fingers, whatever it is you want to make sure that you transfer the image or that you place the image face down and you really get it into complete contact with the polymer clay without any air bubbles for kind of obvious reasons. And obviously if there's anything like words or lettering, you're going to have to do a reverse copy and I'm not even going to pretend I know exactly how to pull that one off. So um, you make your contact, you rub it in, you, you get it all nice and smooth, and then you go and either spritz it with water or spritz it with gin for those of you who are feeling like having a little more fun with your craft time. And I, I think you have to spritz it, you know, considerably. I'd start with two or three squirts of a of a water-filled spray bottle or or gin bottle if you happen to have your gin bottle with you. You spritz it and then uh, as we have all done at some point in our life, when you worry paper to death with your fingertip, whether it's wet or not, it starts to peel. Uh, Well, when it's wet, it really starts to peel. And what you're doing is you're basically treating the paper like a removable backing for a sticker. And so as you spritz and you rub with your fingertip with kind of a light but even pressure, um, all of the paper will rub off and leave behind the image. This sounds miraculous to me but it what it appears to be is that the the process of rubbing over the the back of the paper and pushing the image into the polymer clay and letting it rest for a little bit and then watering it and rubbing off the paper what you're doing is actually and in fact transferring the ink to the polymer uh, people use both white and translucent polymer I have not tried this yet I am going to today um, but there are many videos on YouTube. I am including the one that I liked best that I thought was um, kind of the, the easiest to follow and, and the most obvious too and also short. Uh, but wow! Think about for all of you who, who paint, who draw, or even who knit. If you've gotten, if you've got a knit design or if you've got a picture from something that you've knit that's, you know, the pictures on Ravelry or whatever that you're particularly taken by that you think is really quite lovely. You could take that photograph and get a laser printout or a photocopy printout and make tiles of your knitting work too. And the possibilities are endless. Um, But it's just, it's such an exciting idea. And of course, very important right now, ridiculously inexpensive to do. I got 12 pages worth of watercolors transferred yesterday at office depot or office max one of the two for um four dollars yeah and and two two of those multiple sheets were 11 by 17 because we could fit a bunch of the little watercolors onto that four bucks and then you know the buck 80 or whatever it is for the the femo or the the sculpey or, or whatever you prefer to use anyway Really nifty stuff. Very exciting about that. There's some other very nifty and exciting things happening with two of our listeners, Todd Culp, who is a professor back in Chicago, and Kate Rockland. Both have published books. Uh, Kate's is already on uh, Amazon. And uh, she will be reading a passage from that for next episode. I did want to give you a heads up, though, because I know some of you listen with your children. The content of the reading that she will do is adult content. So um, I can't mark the the episode as clean for next episode. I just wanted to let you know because sometimes your downloaders skip an episode that has not been labeled clean. So if 177 just disappears, you should go check the website and see if you can get it back. So Kate Rockland's book is called Falling is Like This. She's, she's doing very well with that. And of course, we like to support our listening family. And then Todd Culp, who I've been emailing back and forth with, as you can tell, he's a man and started off listening with his wife and uh, because she forced him to and now listens on his own not a knitter, but obviously a creative man and really a lovely one because I'm going to read you a little tiny blurb. And this is just part of the email. It's not like a a, professional blurb thing of something that he wrote. He mentioned something about studying political violence. And I wrote back and said, political violence, why? And he said, well, my research has taken me mostly to the West Bank and Gaza, as well as Southeast Asia. I began studying terrorism as a phenomenon i.e. motivation, causes, etc. Today I just finished a book telling the heroic stories of people I've worked with in the peace movement, Israelis, Palestinians, and internationals, both in Israel and the West Bank. There are so many hopeful stories going on over there. We tend to only hear the depressing and polarizing ones. There are so many inspiring examples of people stretching their hands across the battle lines in a gesture of peace to work with their quote-unquote enemies. But if you want to write about them, sometimes you have to spend a lot of time in places where things blow up. And, um, and for Todd, that's kind of huge because he has three little girls at home. But, uh, but isn't that lovely? I mean, oh, a hopeful book about the world? Shocking. I didn't think anybody was able to write those anymore. So yay to Todd. And um, right now we have a link to the publisher's website. That will be on the show notes soon. We will have a link to Amazon as well, and um, and I'm checking with Todd to see if maybe we can get him to read some of his book for you next week as well. His book is called "The Friends Whose Names I'll Never Know," and the last bit of email news comes from our listener Rita, who is at readingmother.blogspot.com, who has an awesome quote at the bottom of her email from Don Helder Camara. When I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. Makes you think, doesn't it? So here's her little quotation. uh, Little quotation. That was her little quotation. Now here's her email. She says, I'm really enjoying Connecticut Yankee, especially all the Twain talk. I grew up with Mark Twain, not in the sense of having read a lot of his works, but in his presence, which permeates my hometown of Elmira, New York. Not many people associate Mark Twain with upstate New York, but Livy's family lived there, and the Clemens family frequently summered there. Quarry Farm belonged to one of Livy's sisters. The Clemens families would stay there in summer. No one could stand Sam's cigar smoke, so they built him his own study shaped like a riverboat's pilot house. The study is now on the campus of Elmira College, which houses a center for Mark Twain studies. And there's a link to a page with a picture of the really beautiful little study that they built for him. Um, and, uh, And Mark Twain is buried in the Elmira Woodlawn Cemetery. And then she adds, I think Livy was probably a good foil for Twain. Her family was prominent in Park Church, a progressive congregationalist church. They were married by the Reverend Thomas Beecher recognize that last name, the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Interestingly though, Beecher was not an abolitionist. Even so, he was still welcome at the Langdon home and even had a key so that he could pop across the street for a nap since the Langdon home was closer to the church than his own. (laughs) I love it. So yeah, 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 yeah. Elmira, New York. And in fact, um, let's see, he's been in, he was born in what, Florida, Missouri? It was weird. And then they moved to Hannibal, and then they were um, Elmira-ish, and then Hartford, Connecticut, plus all of his traveling. So, you know, we think about us, our mo- we modern people moving around and being a little too mobile for our own good, but uh, Twain certainly gave us a run for our money in that, in that department. So, you know, there it is. And another quick new thing in the crafty world, there is a new website called Creating the Hive all one word dot com and it's um well what it appears to be is a compendium of craftiness teachers speakers craftlet was invited to um post a profile there so i did and um there were articles and videos and all sorts of crafting things. So, I think regardless of what you like to do with your free time, it might be worth going over and trolling around and taking a look. Everybody, everybody who I've met who listens to the podcast has so much to share and and so much, you know, it's like so much collective wisdom that you have acquired over a lifetime. and I And I don't mean wisdom like, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket kind of wisdom, but stuff like I learned from my sister-in-law about quilting just by, you know, having a chance to talk with her without children banging on you all the time. It's all I'm saying is it is very possible that creating the hive is going to be the place that you wish had been around before because maybe this is going to be an easier organizational structure by which you can um, follow things that you're interested in. And speaking of that, uh, Craftlet has a fan page on Facebook. There's a link to the fan page on the show notes in the lower left sidebar. Things have moved around a little bit, but now it's in the lower left sidebar. And um, we had a group page and the group page, uh, mm, Facebook created group pages before they created fan pages and so it looked like that was the way to go and then when they did the fan pages it turned out that that was much more useful for our purposes so kind of migrating the group over to the fan page such as it is and um so information about what would madame defarge knits and new things in the tutorial world ebooks that are coming out from the craft lit family all sorts of stuff like that all of it's going to be on the Facebook fan page and on Twitter so lots of new information coming out I will be disseminating it as fast as I can as often as I can and uh, it will all speed up around mid-August because the boys will be back in school and I will have my days back and uh and I'm gonna miss them is the thing it's nice when you miss your kids you know I mean the alternative would be really horrible but um but it's very hard to try and find hours in the day to keep up with everything. Like I have had 120 emails sitting in my inbox for five days now because I've gone through and I'm just dealing with like the emergencies and the trash, stuff I can trash. and (laughs) And then the rest of them are just sitting there. So this morning, a whole bunch of people got emails back from their Monday email. And I'm sorry about that, but I know you understand. And yes, I know today is the last day of July, but if you manage to uh, get a donation into Craftlit by the end of the day today, um, you will be put into the drawing for a project bag that's available at Libby's Leashes. You can go to the link on craftlit.com or go to quiltedrobin.etsy.com and take a look at the bags that are available. I'll put your name in a hat if you donate and someone's going to win a project bag and you'll get to pick which project bag you want because Robin is just that cool. And, uh, we have a new incentive for the month of August. So that's coming up as well, as well as I think I mentioned, uh, the new sneak peek pattern for the What Would Madame Defarge Knits book. That will come the second week of August. I'll try and get that out before I head off to the wedding. And, um, The last thing before we get into just Twain is Julie at Forgotten Classics. She's actually my segue because Twain's going to lighten to religion today. Hard. Hot and heavy. Hot and heavy religion commentary today. But the other thing is uh, Julie over at Forgotten Classics has uh, told me two things. One, she is going to be doing the book of Genesis on her podcast. I am not sure which edition of the book of, Gen- you know, if she's going to do like, you know, what do you call it? Um, King James or, or something else. I don't know, but she will be doing the book of Genesis on her cast. The other thing is since we've been talking about Mark Twain and Joan of Arc and that book, um, she's going to do it. She doesn't, I don't think she knows exactly when, but she's going to let me know, and I'll be able to tell you, and then we can all listen, and maybe even write comments in her show notes as well, because uh, a lot of us, a lot of interesting things are happening. Um, People, remember when we did Flatland, all of a sudden there were jokes on, what was it, um, Big Bang Theory, and Flatland was like in the news everywhere. Some similar things are happening to people about Twain right now. Twain is cropping up in strange places in their life, or the word palimpsest is tro- cropping up. And um, the Joan of Arc thing is cropping up as well. So I think Julie's going to take that sucker on for us, and, uh, and I'll be sure to let you know. But, um, but yeah, yay, Julie. If you haven't listened to Forgotten Classics, Julie has a lovely voice, and it's, it's nice to listen to, you know, listen to a good book. So... There it is. So today we have chapters eleven through thirteen, and I'm finding it more and more difficult to figure out how to chop up Mark Twain. His stuff just runs together. It's not really well. It's episodic and quixotic. Although I suppose you can't say that anymore now that they're spelling Quixote with a J. I have to think about that for a while. Anyway, it's uh, it is episodic. Uh, The episodes go longer than one chapter. And uh, we are kind of stopping. I found a stopping point in this episode. There, there's still a little bit more. Um, but just to remind you, last episode, chapter 9 and 10, uh, our man, the boss, insulted, um, was it Sir Sagramore, I think? And therefore, he is going to have to be in a duel, a joust with the sir and before he's allowed to do that he has to go off on a quest. So we that's where we left off. This week we deal with the quest. And um there's a there's a few things a few things to listen for. I've already told you that he's going to um he's he's going to go after the church. Uh as you know, he he's an equal opportunity offender. He goes after everybody at some point or another. But um but I think today probably more than in our previous chapters, it becomes truly apparent that who he is going after is Sir Walter Scott, and and that genre of highly romanticized medieval uh, imagery and and uh, even um, the the posturing and the style of conversation and the, the lifestyle, all of this, you know, he wasn't setting out to write a historical novel and you can really tell in this episode that he's making fun of a, of a particular uh, literary genre. Now, if you go back and you read Mallory or anything like that, he also makes fun of that, but you, you realize that he has lifted entire chunks of Mallory and put them in his book. So, either he felt it was super important for you to see the real deal, to see what he's doing ironically and and satirically with it, or he included the real deal because he actually thought the real deal was important for its, you know, on its own merits. And um, I think we could, you could probably argue either direction with it. The thing about Twain, however, that is impressive, I think, in the chapters we're listening to today, is as much as the boss is criticizing the sixth century's conventions, I have gotten myself into more tongue twisters doing this book than any other book ever. Sixth century conventions. Uh, The more the boss exposes his own weaknesses to us, we really start to get a picture. I mean, if you've already It's gotten sketched for you. Now we're adding some color and dimension to our sketch. Um, As Twain said, the man's an ignoramus. That may be true. He is certainly a good-hearted ignoramus, but in that kind of quintessentially American way of, of, you know, he thinks he knows better. He thinks everybody needs to do it his way. He thinks everybody would be better off if they would just shut up and listen to him because he knows what to do. But by talking about all those things, he really exposes the limitations of his knowledge and um, the the flaws in some of his kind of conceptual ideas about how things work or should work. And of course, some of, some of that also enters into his attacks on the church. Um, although, I'm, I, again, I am re- deferring to Julie. Julie. Um, and actually, Renee, you're out there. Um, you, I know you're not Catholic, but when he, there are some places where Twain attacks religion qua religion, and some places where he's attacking uh, the the older historic um, Roman Catholic Church. Please feel free to weigh in, because I think um, I think it's important for just like with the medieval stuff, you know how don't use the word "feudal" with a medieval scholar kind of thing, Uh, it's important for us to get um, a reality check on some of the satire because, as we learned with Flatland, satire only works if you know enough about the initial um, thing that one is satirizing. That was pretty deft, wasn't it? (laughs) I'm feeling so articulate today. Um, The other thing to listen for is uh, early on, Early on in the quest, um, our hero, the boss, leaves Camelot and goes out into the forest. And there's a good long chunk of writing; it's a, it's a good long paragraph in the in the text where he describes what he is in. And of course, the irony here is that the boss is planning to build factories and ruin the landscape that he talks about so lovingly in this part. The thing that I think is extremely important to listen for in a section like this and it will happen a couple of times is what a beautiful writer Twain is. We remember him for being funny and when we're done with this book you will remember him for being heartbreaking and prescient as well but uh, we forget that part of that uh, ability to write well is just flat out the ability to write well. And it's, uh, it's evident in books like Huck Finn, where you have these kind of long lyrical passages about the river and traveling down the river and, you know, Huck and Jim on the river and what the river looks like and the river banks and how it sounds and the boats and this and that and the other thing. And that's f- fairly obvious. Um, but then Huck Finn is known to be at least on on a number of levels, a fairly serious book. When we get to Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, we don't necessarily expect writing like that. And we don't get it in such large chunks, but we do get it. And there is a lovely little section in in this, uh, one of the chapters that's coming up, I think it's the beginning of chapter 12, that you will hear. Um, it also is a reminder that uh, Twain loved Don Quixote. He, he loved the book. And uh, I know I've mentioned it before. There was a recent, and by recent, I mean since 2006. Uh, no, I take that back. Recent since 2003, because I can't quite recall if it was before or after I quit teaching in New York. Anyway, uh, translation of Don Quixote. Wonderful translation. I listened to it on a book on CD from the library. Just brilliant. Bloody brilliant. It was just amazing, because this translation really got the satire and kind of the the postmodern ironic eyebrow raising that Cervantes was doing in writing Don Quixote. And you can see the ripples, the effect of that book on Twain in this text, and especially in this section, because now our hero is out writing on a quest. It's this kind of Picturesque thing where he's he's kind of going place to place and um, and it's a buddy picture we start we really start I mean we've had Clarence I'm sorry his name just cracks me up we've had Clarence as a character now for a while uh, we gain a new character and um, and and the the travel thing uh, the travel motif the kind of buddy picture two guys on the road or in this case a guy and a girl on the road or on the river. This is, you know, this has become kind of iconic American fiction. And it's I mean, whether it's Lethal Weapon, the movie, or Huck and Jim, we we watch we see a lot of buddy pictures. And it goes I mean far from being purely American, it goes right back to Don Quixote. Um, and really if you wanted to push it, it goes back to Gilgamesh and Enkidu. There is something about um, mostly men and the buddy picture idea um certainly there have been good women One. oh did anybody else see the Thelma and Louise advertisement I was actually a little distraught because I remember the end of Thelma and Louise the movie and it, I really don't think that should become an advertisement for a restaurant you should look for it I'm sure it's on YouTube by now anyway chapters today chapters 11 through 13 uh oh the other thing to listen for is once again um, Mark Twain's kind of the the air of propriety that the boss carries with him from the 19th century, this kind of Victorian attitude. It shows itself again in these chapters, and it is just flat out kind of amusing because here he is pushing the envelope in everything else, but not where it comes to women. It's very interesting. So, once again, an enormous, humongous thank you to John Greenman, for being the man who reads Mark Twain for us in Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court.
1: Here you go. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Chapter 11, The Yankee in Search of Adventures. There never was such a country for wandering liars, and they were of both sexes. Hardly a month went by without one of these tramps arriving, and generally loaded with a tale about some princess or other wanting help to get her out of some faraway castle where she was held in captivity by a lawless scoundrel, usually a giant. Now, you would think that the first thing the king would do, after listening to such a novelette from an entire stranger, would be to ask for credentials, yes, and a a pointer or two as to locality of castle, best route to it, and so on. "'But nobody ever thought of so simple and common-sense a thing as that. "'No, everybody swallowed these people's lies whole "'and never asked a question of any sort or about anything. "'Well, one day when I was not around, one of these people came along. "'It was a she-one this time, and told a tale of the usual pattern. "'Her mistress was a captive in a vast and gloomy castle.' along with forty-four other young and beautiful girls, pretty much all of them princesses. They had been languishing in that cruel captivity for twenty-six years. The masters of the castle were three stupendous brothers, each with four arms and one eye, the eye in the center of the forehead, and as big as a fruit, sort of fruit not mentioned, their usual slovenliness in statistics. Would you believe it? The king and the whole round table were in raptures over this preposterous opportunity for adventure. Every knight of the table jumped for the chance and begged for it, but to their vexation and chagrin the king conferred it upon me, who had not asked for it at all. By an effort I contained my joy when Clarence brought me the news, but he, he could not contain his... His mouth gushed delight and gratitude in a steady discharge, delight in my good fortune, gratitude to the king for this splendid mark of his favor for me. He could keep neither his legs nor his body still, but pirouetted about the place in an airy ecstasy of happiness. On my side, I could have cursed the kindness that conferred upon me this benefaction, but I kept my vexation under the surface for policy's sake— and did what I could to let on to be glad. Indeed, I said I was glad, and in a way it was true. I was as glad as a person is when he is scalped. Well, one must make the best of things, and not waste time with useless fretting, but get down to business and see what can be done. In all lies there is wheat among the chaff. I must get at the wheat in this case. So I sent for the girl, and she came.' She was a comely enough creature, and soft and modest, but if signs went for anything, she didn't know as much as a lady's watch. I said, "'My dear, have you been questioned as to particulars?' She said she hadn't. "'Well, I didn't expect you had, but I thought I would ask to make sure. It's the way I've been raised. Now, you mustn't take it unkindly if I remind you that as we don't know you, we must go a little slow.' You may be all right, of course, and we'll hope that you are, but to take it for granted isn't business. You understand that. I'm obliged to ask you a few questions. Just answer up fair and square and don't be afraid. Where do you live when you are at home? In the land of motor, fair sir. Land of motor? I don't remember hearing of it before. Parents living? "'As to that, I know not if they be yet on live, "'sith it is many years that I have lain shut up in the castle.' "'Your name, please?' "'I hight the Demoiselle Alisande de Cartloise, and it please you.' "'Do you know anybody here who can identify you?' "'That were not likely, fair lord, I being come hither now for the first time.' "'Have you brought any letters, any documents, "'any proofs that you are trustworthy and truthful?' of a certainty no and wherefore should i have i not a tongue and cannot i say all that myself but you're saying it you know and somebody else is saying it is different different how might that be i fear me i do not understand don't understand land why you see you see my great scott can't you understand a little thing like that can't you understand the difference between your why why do you look so innocent and idiotic i in truth i know not but it were the will of god yes yes i reckon that's about the size of it don't mind my seeming excited i'm not let us change the subject now as to this castle with forty-five princesses in it and three ogres at the head of it uh, tell me uh, where is this harem harem the castle you understand where is the castle Oh, as to that, it is great and strong, and well be seen and lieth in a far country. Yes, it is many leagues. How many? Ah, fair sir, it were woundily hard to tell they are so many, and do so lap the one upon the other, and, being made all in the same image, and tinct with the same colour, one may not know the one league from its fellow, nor how to count them, except they be taken apart, and ye wit well it were God's work to do that, being not within man's capacity, for ye will note— Hold on, hold on, never mind about the distance. Whereabouts does the castle lie? What's the direction from here? Ah, please you, sir, it hath no direction from here— but reason that the road lieth not straight, but turneth evermore, wherefore the direction of its place abideth not, but is some time under the one sky, and anon under another.' Whereso if ye be minded that it is in the east, and when thitherward, the word, ye shall observe that the way of the road doth yet again turn upon itself by the space of half a circle, and this marvel happening again, and yet again, and still again, it will grieve you that you had thought by vanities of the mind to thwart, and bring to naught the will of him that giveth not a castle a direction from a place except it pleaseth him.' and if it please him not will the rather that he even all castles and all directions thereunto vanish out of the earth leaving the places wherein they tarry desolate and vacant so warning his creatures that where he will he will and where he will not he oh that's all right that's all right give us a rest never mind about the direction hang the direction i, I beg pardon I, I beg a thousand pardons i am not well today "'Pay no attention when I soliloquize. "'It is an old habit, an old bad habit, "'and hard to get rid of when one's digestion is all disordered "'with eating food that was raised forever and ever before he was born. "'Good land! "'A man can't keep his functions regular on spring chickens thirteen hundred years old. "'But come, never mind about that. "'Let's, um—' "'Have you got such a thing as a map of that region about you? "'Now, a good map, is it—' adventure that manner of thing which of late the unbelievers have brought from over the great seas which being boiled in oil and an onion and salt added thereto doth what a map Uh, what are you talking about don't you know what a map is Uh, there there never mind don't explain i hate explanations they fog a thing up so that you can't tell anything about it run along dear a good day Uh, show her the way clarence oh well it was reasonably plain now why these donkeys didn't prospect these liars for details it may be that this girl had a fact in her somewhere but i don't believe you could have sluiced it out with a hydraulic nor got it with the earlier forms of blasting even it was a case for dynamite why she was a perfect ass and yet the king and his knights had listened to her as if she had been a leaf out of the gospel it kind of sizes up the whole party "'And think of the simple ways of this court. "'This wandering wench hadn't any more trouble "'to get access to the king in his palace "'than she would have had to get into the poorhouse "'in my day and country. "'In fact, he was glad to see her, glad to hear her tale. "'With that adventure of hers to offer, "'she was as welcome as a corpse is to a coroner. "'Just as I was ending up these reflections, "'Clarence came back. "'I remarked upon the barren result of my efforts with the girl.' hadn't got hold of a single point that could help me to find the castle. The youth looked a little surprised, or puzzled or something, and intimated that he had been wondering to himself what I had wanted to ask the girl all those questions for. Why, great guns, I said, don't I want to find the castle? And how else would I go about it? La, sweet your worship, one may lightly answer that, I ween. She will go with thee, they always do, she will ride with thee. "'Ride with me? Nonsense! "'But of a truth she will. "'She will ride with thee. Thou shalt see.' "'What? "'She browse around the hills and scour the woods with me, alone? "'And I as good as engaged to be married? "'Why, it's scandalous! Think how it would look!' "'My! The dear face that rose before me! "'The boy was eager to know all about this tender matter. "'I swore him to secrecy and then whispered her name. "'Puss Flanagan!' "'He looked disappointed.' and said he didn't remember the countess how natural it was for the little courtier to give her a rank he asked me where she lived in east hart uh, i came to myself and stopped a little confused and then i said never mind now i'll, I'll tell you sometime and might he see her would i let him see her some day it was but a little thing to promise 1300 years or so and he's so eager so i said yes but i sighed i couldn't help it and yet there was no sense in sighing, for she wasn't born yet, but that is the way we are made, we don't reason where we feel, we just feel. My expedition was all the talk that day and that night, and the boys were very good to me, and made much of me, and seemed to have forgotten their vexation and disappointment, and come to be as anxious for me to hive those ogres, and set those ripe old virgins loose, as if it were themselves that had the contract— well, they were good children, but just children, that is all, and they gave me no end of points about how to scout for giants and how to scoop them in, and they told me all sorts of charms against enchantments, and gave me salves and other rubbish to put on my wounds, but it never occurred to one of them to reflect that if I was such a wonderful necromancer as I was pretending to be, I ought not to need salves or instructions or charms against enchantments." and least of all arms and armor on a foray of any kind, even against fire-spouting dragons and devils hot from perdition, let alone such poor adversaries as these I was after, these commonplace ogres of the back settlements. I was to have an early breakfast and start at dawn, for that was the usual way, but I had the demon's own time with my armor, and this delayed me a little. It is troublesome to get into.' and there is so much detail. First you wrap a layer or two of blanket around your body, for a sort of cushion and to keep off the cold iron. Then you put on your sleeves and shirt of chain mail. These are made of small steel links woven together, and they form a fabric so flexible that if you toss your shirt onto the floor, it slumps into a pile like a peck of wet fishnet. It is very heavy, and is nearly the uncomfortablest material in the world for a night's shirt, yet plenty used it for that—tax collectors and reformers, and one-horse kings with a defective title, and those sorts of people. Then you put on your shoes, flatboats roofed over with interleaving bands of steel, and screw your clumsy spurs into the heels. Next you buckle your greaves on your legs, and your creases on your thighs then come your back plate and your breastplate and you begin to feel crowded then you hitch onto the breastplate the half petticoat of broad overlapping bands of steel which hangs down in front but is scalloped out behind so you can sit down and isn't any real improvement on an inverted coal scuttle either for looks or for wear or to wipe your hands on next you belt on your sword then you put your stovepipe joints onto your arms your iron gauntlets onto your hands your iron rat-trap onto your head, with a rag of steel web hitched onto it to hang over the back of your neck, and there you are, snug as a candle in a candle-mold. This is no time to dance. Well, a man that is packed away like that is a nut that isn't worth the cracking. There is so little of the meat, even when you get down to it by comparison with the shell. The boys helped me, or I never could have got in. Just as we finished, Sir Bedivere happened in— And I saw that, as like as not, I hadn't chosen the most convenient outfit for a long trip. How stately he looked, and tall and broad and grand! He had on his head a conical steel cask that only came down to his ears, and for visor had only a narrow steel bar that extended down to his upper lip and protected his nose. And all the rest of him, from neck to heel, was flexible chain-mail, trousers and all— but pretty much all of him was hidden under his outside garment, which, of course, was of chain mail, as I said, and hung straight from his shoulders to his ankles, and from his middle to the bottom, both before and behind, was divided, so that he could ride and let the skirts hang down on each side. He was going grayling, and it was just the outfit for it, too. I would have given a good deal for that ulster, but it was too late now to be fooling around, the sun was just up the king and the court were all on hand to see me off and wish me luck so it wouldn't be etiquette for me to tarry you don't get on your horse yourself no if you try it you would get disappointed they carry you out just as they carry a sun-struck man to the drugstore and put you on and help get you to rights and fix your feet in the stirrups And all the while you do feel so strange and stuffy and like somebody else, like somebody that has been married on a sudden or struck by lightning or something like that, and hasn't quite fetched around yet, and is sort of numb, and can't just get his bearings. Then they stood up the mast they called a spear in its socket by my left foot, and I gripped it with my hand. Lastly, they hung my shield around my neck, and I was all complete and ready to up-anchor and get to sea.' "'Everybody was as good to me as they could be, "'and a maid of honour gave me the stirrup-cup her own self. "'There was nothing more to do now "'but for that damsel to get up behind me on a pillion, "'which she did, "'and put an arm or so around me to hold on. "'And so we started, "'and everybody gave us a good-bye "'and waved their handkerchiefs or helmets, "'and everybody we met going down the hill "'and through the village was respectful to us, "'except some shabby little boys on the outskirts. "'They said,' oh what a guy and hove clods at us in my experience boys are the same in all ages they don't respect anything they don't care for anything or anybody they say go up bald head to the prophet going his unoffending way in the gray of antiquity they sass me in the holy gloom of the middle ages and i had seen them act the same way in buchanan's administration i remember because i was there and helped The prophet had his bears and settled with his boys, and I wanted to get down and settle with mine, but it wouldn't answer, because I couldn't have got up again. I hate a country without a derrick. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 Slow Torture Straight off we were in the country. It was most lovely and pleasant in those sylvan solitudes in the early cool morning, in the first freshness of autumn from hilltops we saw fair green valleys lying spread out below with streams winding through them and island groves of trees here and there and huge lonely oaks scattered about and casting black blots of shade and beyond the valleys we saw the ranges of hills, blue with haze, stretching away in billowy perspective to the horizon, with at wide intervals a dim fleck of white or gray on a wave summit, which we knew was a castle. We crossed broad natural lawns sparkling with dew, and we moved like spirits, the cushioned turf giving out no sound of footfall. We dreamed along through glades in a mist of green light that got its tint from the sun-drenched roof of leaves overhead, and by our feet the clearest and coldest of runlets went frisking and gossiping over its reefs and making a sort of whispering music, comfortable to hear, and at times we left the world behind and entered into the solemn great deeps and rich gloom of the forest.' where furtive wild things whisked and scurried by and were gone before you could even get your eye on the place where the noise was, and where only the earliest birds were turning out and getting to business with a song here and a quarrel yonder and a mysterious far-off hammering and drumming for worms on a tree trunk away somewhere in the impenetrable remoteness of the woods. And by and by out we would swing again into the glare." "'About the third or fourth or fifth time that we swung out into the glare, it was along there somewhere a couple of hours or so after sun-up, it wasn't as pleasant as it had been. It was beginning to get hot. This was quite noticeable. We had a very long pull after that without any shade. Now it is curious how progressively little frets grow and multiply after they once get a start.' things which i didn't mind at all at first i began to mind now and more and more too all the time the first ten or fifteen times i wanted my handkerchief i didn't seem to care i got along and said never mind it isn't any matter and dropped it out of my mind but now it was different i wanted it all the time it was nag 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 right along and no rest I couldn't get it out of my mind, and so at last I lost my temper and said, Hang a man that would make a suit of armor without any pockets in it. You see, I had my handkerchief in my helmet, and some other things, but it was that kind of a helmet that you can't take off by yourself. That hadn't occurred to me when I put it there, and in fact I didn't know it. I supposed it would be particularly convenient there, and so now the thought of its being there, so handy and close by, and yet not get atable made it all the worse and the harder to bear yes the thing that you can't get is the thing that you want mainly everyone has noticed that well it took my mind off from everything else took it clear off and centered it in my helmet and mile after mile there it stayed imagining the handkerchief picturing the handkerchief and it was bitter and aggravating to have the salt sweat keep trickling down into my eyes and i couldn't get at it It seems like a little thing on paper, but it was not a little thing at all. It was the most real kind of misery. I would not say it if it was not so. I made up my mind that I would carry along a reticule next time, let it look how it might, and people say what they would. Of course, these iron dudes of the round table would think it was scandalous and maybe raise shell about it. But as for me, give me comfort first and style afterwards.' so we jogged along and now and then we struck a stretch of dust and it would tumble up in clouds and get into my nose and make me sneeze and cry and of course i said things i oughtn't to have said i don't deny that i am not better than others we couldn't seem to meet anybody in this lonesome britain not even an ogre and in the mood i was in then it was well for the ogre that is an ogre with a handkerchief Most knights would have thought of nothing but getting his armor, but so I got his bandana, he could keep his hardware for all of me. Meantime, it was getting hotter and hotter in there. You see, the sun was beating down and warming up the iron more and more all the time. Well, when you are hot that way, every little thing irritates you. When I trotted, I rattled like a crate of dishes, and that annoyed me and moreover i couldn't seem to stand that shield slatting and banging now about my breast now around my back and if i dropped into a walk my joints creaked and screeched in that wearisome way that a wheelbarrow does and as we didn't create any breeze at that gate i was like to get fried in that stove and besides the quieter you went the heavier the iron settled down on you and the more and more tons you seemed to weigh every minute and you had to be always changing hands and passing your spear over to the other foot. It got so irksome for one hand to hold it long at a time. Well, you know, when you perspire that way in rivers, there comes a time when you, when you, well, when you itch. You are inside, your hands are outside, so there you are, nothing but iron between. It is not a light thing, let it sound as it may. First it is one place, then another— then some more, and it goes on spreading and spreading, and at last the territory is all occupied, and nobody can imagine what you feel like, nor how unpleasant it is, and when it had got to the worst, and it seemed to me that I could not stand anything more, a fly got in through the bars and settled on my nose, and the bars were stuck and wouldn't work, and I couldn't get the visor up, and I could only shake my head, which was baking hot by this time, and the fly—well— "'You know how a fly acts when he has got a certainty. "'He only minded the shaking enough to change from nose to lip, "'and lip to ear, and buzz and buzz all around in there, "'and keep on lighting and biting in a way that a person already so distressed as I was "'simply could not stand. "'So I gave in, and got Alisande to unship the helmet and relieve me of it. "'Then she emptied the conveniences out of it and fetched it full of water— and I drank, and then stood up, and she poured the rest down inside the armor. One cannot think how refreshing it was. She continued to fetch and pour until I was well soaked and thoroughly comfortable. It was good to have a rest, and peace, but nothing is quite perfect in this life at any time. I had made a pipe a while back, and also some pretty fair tobacco.' not the real thing but what some of the indians use the inside bark of the willow dried these comforts had been in the helmet and now i had them again but no matches gradually as the time wore along one annoying fact was borne in upon my understanding that we were weather-bound an armed novice cannot mount his horse without help and plenty of it sandy was not enough not enough for me anyway We had to wait until somebody should come along. Waiting in silence would have been agreeable enough, for I was full of matter for reflection and wanted to give it a chance to work. I wanted to try and think how it was that rational or even half-rational men could ever have learned to wear armor, considering its inconveniences, and how they had managed to keep up such a fashion for generations when it was plain that what I had suffered today they had had to suffer all the days of their lives.' I wanted to think that out, and, moreover, I wanted to think out some way to reform this evil and persuade the people to let the foolish fashion die out. But thinking was out of the question in the circumstances. You couldn't think where Sandy was. She was a quite biddable creature and good-hearted, but she had a flow of talk that was as steady as a mill and made your head soar like the drays and wagons in a city. If she had had a cork, she would have been a comfort. But you can't cork that kind— They would die. Her clack was going all day, and you would think something would surely happen to her works by and by, but no, they never got out of order. She never had to slack up for words. She could grind and pump and churn and buzz by the week and never stop to oil up or blow out, and yet the result was just nothing but wind. She never had any ideas any more than a fog has. She was a perfect blatherskite. I mean for jaw, jaw, jaw talk, 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 jabber, 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 but just as good as she could be. I hadn't minded her mill that morning on account of having that hornet's nest of other troubles, but more than once in the afternoon I had to say, take a rest, child, the way you are using up all the domestic air, the kingdom will have to go to importing it by tomorrow, and it's a low enough treasury without that. End of chapter 12. Chapter 13. Free man. "'Yes, it is strange how little a while at a time a person can be contented. "'Only a little while back, when I was riding and suffering, "'what a heaven, this peace, this rest, this sweet serenity "'in this secluded shady nook by this purling stream "'would have seemed where I could keep perfectly comfortable all the time "'by pouring a dipper of water into my armor now and then. "'Yet already I was getting dissatisfied, "'partly because I could not light my pipe.' "'for, although I had long ago started a match factory, I had forgotten to bring matches with me, and partly because we had nothing to eat. "'Here was another illustration of the childlike improvidence of this age and people. "'A man in armor always trusted to chance for his food on a journey, and would have been scandalized at the idea of hanging a basket of sandwiches on his spear.' There was probably not a knight of all the round-table combination who would not rather have died than have been caught carrying such a thing as that on his flagstaff, and yet there could not be anything more sensible. It had been my intention to smuggle a couple of sandwiches into my helmet, but I was interrupted in the act, and had to make an excuse and lay them aside, and a dog got them. Night approached, and with it a storm. The darkness came on fast. We must camp, of course.' i found a good shelter for the demoiselle under a rock and went off and found another for myself but i was obliged to remain in my armour because i could not get it off by myself and yet could not allow Alessandra to help because it would have seemed so like undressing before folk It would not have amounted to that in reality, because I had clothes on underneath, but the prejudices of one's breeding are not gotten rid of just at a jump, and I knew that when it came to stripping off that bob-tailed iron petticoat, I should have been embarrassed. With the storm came a change of weather, and the stronger the wind blew, and the wilder the rain lashed around, the colder and colder it got." Pretty soon various kinds of bugs and ants and worms and things began to flock in out of the wet and crawl down inside my armor to get warm, and while some of them behaved well enough and snuggled up amongst my clothes and got quiet, the majority were of a restless, uncomfortable sort and never stayed still, but went on prowling and hunting, for they did not know what, especially the ants, which went tickling along in worrisome procession from one end of me to the other by the hour— and are a kind of creatures which I never wish to sleep with again. It would be my advice to persons situated in this way to not roll or thrash around, because this excites the interest of all the different sorts of animals and makes every last one of them want to turn out and see what is going on, and this makes things worse than they were before, and of course makes you objugate harder, too, if you can. Still, if one did not roll and thrash around, he would die." so perhaps it is as well to do one way as the other. There is no real choice. Even after I was frozen solid, I could still distinguish that tickling, just as a corpse does when he is taking electric treatment. I said I would never wear armor after this trip.' all those trying hours whilst i was frozen and yet was in a living fire as you may say on account of that swarm of crawlers that same unanswerable question kept circling and circling through my tired head how do people stand this miserable armor how have they managed to stand it all these generations and how can they sleep at night for dreading the tortures of next day when the morning came at last i was in a bad enough plight seedy drowsy, fagged from want of sleep, weary from thrashing around, famished from long fasting, pining for a bath, and to get rid of the animals, and crippled with rheumatism. And how had it fared with the nobly-born, the titled aristocrat, the Demoiselle Alisande de la carte l'oise? Why, she was as fresh as a squirrel. She had slept like the dead, and as for a bath, probably neither she nor any other noble in the land had ever had one— so she was not missing it. Measured by modern standards, they were merely modified savages, those people. This noble lady showed no impatience to get to breakfast, and that smacks of the savage, too. On their journeys, those Britons were used to long fasts, and knew how to bear them, and also how to freight up against the probable fasts before starting, after the style of the Indian and the Anaconda, as like as not Sandy was loaded for a three-day stretch." We were off before sunrise, Sandy riding and I limping along behind. In half an hour we came upon a group of ragged poor creatures who had assembled to mend the thing which was regarded as a road. They were as humble as animals to me, and when I proposed to breakfast with them they were so flattered, so overwhelmed by this extraordinary condescension of mine that at first they were not able to believe that I was in earnest. My lady put up her scornful lip and withdrew to one side— She said in their hearing that she would as soon think of eating with the other cattle, a remark which embarrassed these poor devils merely because it referred to them and not because it insulted or offended them, for it didn't. And yet they were not slaves, not chattels. By a sarcasm of law and phrase, they were free men. Seven-tenths of the free population of the country were of just their class and degree, small, independent farmers, artisans, etc., which is to say they were the nation, the actual nation. They were about all of it that was useful, or worth saving, or really respectworthy, and to subtract them would have been to subtract the nation, and leave behind some dregs, some refuse, in the shape of a king, nobility and gentry, idle, unproductive, acquainted mainly with the arts of wasting and destroying, and of no sort of use or value in any rationally constructed world." and yet by ingenious contrivance this gilded minority instead of being in the tail of the procession where it belonged was marching head up and banners flying at the other end of it had elected itself to be the nation and these innumerable clams had permitted it so long that they had come at last to accept it as a truth and not only that but to believe it right and as it should be The priests had told their fathers and themselves that this ironical state of things was ordained of God, and so, not reflecting upon how unlike God it would be to amuse himself with sarcasms, and especially such poor transparent ones as this, they had dropped the matter there and become respectfully quiet. The talk of these meek people had a strange enough sound in a formerly American ear They were free men, but they could not leave the estates of their lord or their bishop without his permission. They could not prepare their own bread, but must have their corn ground and their bread baked at his mill and his bakery, and pay roundly for the same. They could not sell a piece of their own property without paying him a handsome percentage of the proceeds, nor buy a piece of somebody else's without remembering him in cash for the privilege. They had to harvest his grain for him gratis, and be ready to come at a moment's notice, leaving their own crop to destruction by the threatened storm. They had to let him plant fruit-trees in their fields, and then keep their indignation to themselves when his heedless fruit-gatherers trampled the grain around the trees. They had to smother their anger when his hunting-parties galloped through their fields, laying waste the result of their patient toil. They were not allowed to keep doves themselves— And when the swarms from my lord's dove settled on their crops they must not lose their temper and kill a bird for awful would the penalty be when the harvest was at last gathered then came the procession of robbers to levy their blackmail upon it first the church carted off its fat tenth then the king's commissioner took his twentieth then my lord's people made a mighty inroad upon the remainder after which the skinned freeman had liberty to bestow the remnant in his barn, in case it was worth the trouble. There were taxes, and taxes, and taxes, and more taxes, and taxes again, and yet other taxes upon this free and independent pauper, but none upon his lord, the baron, or the bishop, none upon the wasteful nobility or the all-devouring church. If the baron would sleep unvexed, The free man must sit up all night after his day's work and whip the ponds to keep the frogs quiet. If the free man's uh, daughter—but no, that last infamy of monarchical government is unprintable. And finally, if the free man, grown desperate with his tortures, found his life unendurable under such conditions, and sacrificed it, and fled to death for mercy and refuge— the gentle church condemned him to eternal fire, the gentle law buried him at midnight at the crossroads with a stake through his back, and his master the baron or the bishop confiscated all his property and turned his widow and his orphans out of doors. And here were these freemen, assembled in the early morning to work on their lord the bishop's road three days each, gratis, every head of a family and every son of a family, three days each, gratis, and a day or so added for their servants why it was like reading about france and the french before the ever memorable and blessed revolution which swept a thousand years of such villainy away in one swift tidal wave of blood one a settlement of that hoary debt in the proportion of half a drop of blood for each hogshead of it that had been pressed by slow tortures out of that people in the weary stretch of ten centuries of wrong and shame and misery the like of which was not to be mated but in hell there were two reigns of terror if we would but remember it and consider it the one wrought murder in hot passion the other in heartless cold blood the one lasted mere months the other had lasted a thousand years. The one inflicted death upon ten thousand persons. The other upon a hundred millions. But our shudders are all for the horrors of the minor terror, the momentary terror, so to speak. Whereas what is the horror of swift death by the axe compared with life-long death from hunger, cold, insult, cruelty, and heartbreak? What is swift death by lightning compared with death by slow fire at the stake? A city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by that brief terror which we have all been so diligently taught to shiver at and mourn over, but all France could hardly contain the coffins filled by that older and real terror, that unspeakably bitter and awful terror which none of us has been taught to see in its vastness or pity as it deserves. These poor ostensible free men, who were sharing their breakfast and their talk with me, were as full of humble reverence for their king and church and nobility as their worst enemy could desire. There was something pitifully ludicrous about it. I asked them if they supposed a nation of people ever existed who, with a free vote in every man's hand, would elect that a single family and its descendants should reign over it forever.' whether gifted or boobies, to the exclusion of all other families, including the voters, and would also elect that a certain hundred families should be raised to dizzy summits of rank and clothed on with offensive transmissible glories and privileges to the exclusion of the rest of the nation's families, including his own. They all looked unhit and said they didn't know, that they had never thought about it before, and it had never occurred to them that a nation could be so situated that every man could have a say in the government. I said I had seen one, and that it would last until it had an established church. Again, they were all unhit at first, but presently one man looked up and asked me to state that proposition again, and state it slowly, so it could soak into his understanding. I did it, and after a little he had the idea, and he brought his fist down and said— he didn't believe a nation where every man had a vote would voluntarily get down in the mud and dirt in any such way, and that to steal from a nation its will and preference must be a crime, and the first of all crimes. I said to myself, this one's a man. If I were backed by enough of his sort, I would make a strike for the welfare of this country, and try to prove myself its loyalist citizen by making a wholesome change in its system of government. You see, MY KIND OF LOYALTY WAS LOYALTY TO ONE'S COUNTRY, NOT TO ITS INSTITUTIONS OR ITS OFFICE-HOLDERS. THE COUNTRY IS THE REAL THING, THE SUBSTANTIAL THING, THE ETERNAL THING. IT IS THE THING TO WATCH OVER, AND CARE FOR, AND BE LOYAL TO. INSTITUTIONS ARE EXTRANEOUS. THEY ARE ITS MERE CLOTHING, AND CLOTHING CAN WEAR OUT, BECOME RAGGED, CEASE TO BE COMFORTABLE, CEASE TO PROTECT THE BODY FROM WINTER, DISEASE, AND DEATH. To be loyal to rags to shout for rags to worship rags to die for rags that is a loyalty of unreason it is pure animal it belongs to monarchy was invented by monarchy let monarchy keep it i was from connecticut whose constitution declares that all political power is inherent in the people and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit and that they have, at all times, an undeniable and indefeasible right to alter their form of government in such a manner as they may think expedient. Under that gospel, the citizen who thinks he sees that the Commonwealth's political clothes are worn out, and yet holds his peace, and does not agitate for a new suit, is disloyal. He is a traitor." That he may be the only one who thinks he sees this decay does not excuse him. It is his duty to agitate anyway, and it is the duty of the others to vote him down if they do not see the matter as he does. And now here I was in a country where a right to say how the country should be governed was restricted to six persons in each thousand of its population.' For the 994 to express dissatisfaction with the regnant system and propose to change it would have made the whole six shudder as one man. It would have been so disloyal, so dishonorable, such putrid black treason. So to speak, I was to become a stockholder in a corporation where 994 of the members furnished all the money and did all the work, and the other six elected themselves a permanent board of direction and took all the dividends.' it seemed to me that what the 994 dupes needed was a new deal the thing that would have best suited the circus side of my nature would have been to resign the boss ship and get up an insurrection and turn it into a revolution but i knew that the jack cade or the watt tyler who tries such a thing without first educating his materials up to revolution grade is almost absolutely certain to get left I had never been accustomed to getting left, even if I do say it myself. Wherefore, the deal which had been for some time working into shape in my mind was of a quite different pattern from the Cade-Tyler sort, so I did not talk blood and insurrection to that man there who sat munching black bread with that abused and mistaught herd of human sheep, but took him aside and talked matter of another sort to him. After I had finished— I got him to lend me a little ink from his veins, and with this, and a sliver, I wrote on a piece of bark, put him in the man-factory, and gave it to him, and said, "'Take it to the palace at Camelot, and give it into the hands of Amias Le Poulet, whom I call Clarence, and he will understand.' "'He is a priest, then,' said the man, and some of the enthusiasm went out of his face. "'How a priest!' "'Didn't I tell you that no chattel of the church, "'no bond-slave of pope or bishop, "'can enter my man-factory? "'Didn't I tell you that you couldn't enter "'unless your religion, whatever it might be, "'was your own free property?' "'Mary, it is so, and for that I was glad. "'Wherefore, it liked me not, "'and bred in me a cold doubt "'to hear of this priest being there. "'But he isn't a priest, I tell you.' "'The man looked far from satisfied. "'He said,' he is not a priest and yet can read he is not a priest and yet can read yes and write too for that matter i taught him myself the man's face cleared and it is the first thing that you yourself will be taught in that factory i i would give blood out of my heart to know that art why i will be your slave your no you won't you won't be anybody's slave Take your family and go along. Your lord, the bishop, will confiscate your small property, but no matter. Clarence will fix you all right. End of chapter 13.
0: So, yes, I know sometimes our reader gets confused with which voice he is supposed to be using, especially when Sandy gets into some of her longer passages. He forgets that he's doing a woman. But I have figured that for such a good reader in general and for free it was something we could put up with. I am still considering going back and fixing the audio on Pride and Prejudice, however, because uh, more readers have have popped up with uh, newer and kind of better versions, so I think I'm gonna do that, you know, in my free time. I'll do that while I'm sleeping, I think, is what I'll wind up doing, but be that as it may. Isn't Sandy a kick? And this is, this is where Twain, I just think is such a genius, is we get to hear the boss making fun of her, but she is so, oh, I don't want to use the word virtuous, because that's not really where I'm going with it, but you know, she's such a good person, and she's, she's of her own world, you know, she's very confident being part of her own world, that you know, you just kind of get this idea that she's looking at him like you are a madman. But my mother raised me well, and I will humor you. And you know, and she just kind of goes on from there. And it's it's something that's going to pay off and make more sense in the long run. So enjoy Sandy while you've got her. She's she comes and goes throughout the rest of the book, but uh, but mostly mostly shows up. And so, with that, I leave you. I will probably do, uh, next week, I will probably do another double episode because I've got that wedding coming up and I don't really want to rush or, you know, skip a podcast or something like that, make you suffer just because I'm at a wedding having fun. So, there it is. I hope you have a great week. Check out the links on craftlit.com and uh, and don't forget to look for the books by our two listeners, Kate Rockland and Todd Culp and... I'll talk to you later. Don't forget the incentive this month is found at quiltedrobin.etsy.com, a project bag for you from Libby's Leashes. Talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craft Lit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And Knit Circus online magazine offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the summer issue at www.nitcircus.com And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store or You can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.